Why is America having an epidemic of obesity and diabetes? Because we are doing things we want to do. And we keep shouting at the government, stop us, stop us from doing these things. And then when the government says, well, maybe we should regulate that, they say, how dare you infringe on my freedoms and be paternalistic and tell me what to do? Democratic governments around the world are in a no-win situation at that point. Stop us from hurting ourselves, but don't tell us what to do. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We've witnessed millions of people in the United States who claim to value freedom, tolerance, and the rule of law embrace an illiberal wannabe autocrat in Donald Trump. And as we've seen from Trump's attempts to overturn the election and the attack on our capital, our democracy is in more danger now than at any point since the Civil War. On the show, we focused a lot on identifying the causes of these breakdowns and trying to understand what we can do to repair and rebuild this republic. We are going to dive deeper into this in our two-episode series with Tom Nichols, and the second episode in this series will be out next week. Tom is Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He's an instructor at the Harvard Extension School and an adjunct professor at the U.S. Air Force School of Strategic Force Studies. He's also been a fellow of the International Security Program at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He's a columnist for USA Today, a contributing writer at The Atlantic, and he is most recently the author of Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. Tom, it's so great to see you again. You too, Ron. We were just talking before the show about uh, how difficult this book was for you to write, and I thought maybe we'd start by uh, uh, having you share a bit of those thoughts and why it was so difficult to begin with. Sure. You know, um, when you're, when you've spent a lifetime writing as a scholar, it's, it's hard to step out of that mode and, uh, talk more autobiographically, uh, talk more about your own life. Uh, but I felt the need to do that because I was feeling blocked on this. I, I felt like, First, I think we all feel like democracy is in danger. Yeah. I think no matter who you are in the political spectrum, you know, even the hardline Trump supporters think that they're fighting for democracy. But I wasn't satisfied with the explanations. People kept coming back to, well, you know, and I thought these were really facile explanations. Well, you know, it's it's globalization, it's deindustrialization, it's the forgotten towns, it's opioid addiction, it's, you know, all of these phenomena that um, first, didn't really accord with the facts on the ground and certainly didn't accord with facts on the ground in places uh, beyond the United States, because this is a global phenomenon. I mean, this is the other way I came at this as a scholar who does international stuff. Democracy is not just in trouble in the United States. It's in trouble in the UK, in Poland, in Brazil, in uh, Turkey, in India. I was really having a difficulty here saying, why is it that I can't prove the case that everyone thinks is obvious? And why is it that I feel like that conflicts with what I know from my, my own background growing up in a, you know, deindustrializing factory town, you know, with, I mean, my parents, I, I always point out, you know, my parents were not uh, educated elites. We were working, we were a blue collar family. Um, you know, what, what's underneath all this that seems to explain this more? And so I, I kept going back to the drawing board and I, I kept coming back to that thing that's a lot uh, that a lot of social scientists hate to deal with because it's like trying to nail jello to a wall, but it, but it's culture. 
it's culture and psychology and social the social environment. Um, I think we tend to gravitate toward explanations about economics and um, job rates and things like that because you can quantify them. And we, you know, Americans especially, we love numbers. We love to be able to, you know, put numeric labels on things. But that just didn't explain enough. Um, you know, just before the show, you know, you and I were talking, and I mentioned a recent piece by uh, Robert Kagan. Yeah. You know, two years ago. Uh, I, I was one of the few people saying it, and now it's become the conventional wisdom where Kagan says, geez, you know, uh, I don't think this is about economics. I think it's about culture. You know, I, in my best Bruce Willis voice, I'm yelling, welcome to the party, pal. Uh, <laughs> but it took me a long time to get there, too, to kind of get through this. And and just to preview, I'm sure some of the things we're going to talk about. But, you know, when you look at something like voter behavior or a very discreet event like the January 6th riot. The people that are the most illiberal, most anti-democratic, uh, the, the greatest threat to the Constitution are not armies of poor people. Yeah. They are middle class. They are bored, middle class, uh, you know, Facebook junkies and TV addicts. Yeah. And this the notion and, and you know, Trump and, and his folks and people on the other side. I mean, I know we're going to probably talk about the horseshoe problem, yeah. but people on the far left have also made the argument that, oh, we're commanding, you know, armies of the dispossessed. You're not. Um, I, I, I don't know how to tell you. I don't know how to break this to you, but you're not. Um, what you're commanding are lots of, you know, social media presences of angry college students. And, uh, you know, this has really and this led me to the central argument in the book, which is that the problem is not economic change or deprivation, but that that we actually live in a very affluent um, society with peace and prosperity and very high level levels of uh, standards of living. Yeah. Speaking of numbers and how we love them so much, um, this is this made me think of something we cited on the show recently, which is this new um, CNN SSRS poll. I think it was from last week. That ninety three percent of people say democracy is being attacked or tested, but Republicans are actually more likely to say that democracy is under attack. Seventy five percent of them say it's under attack, and right, just, because, they're, yeah. because they're not getting their way. Right. Um, that's yeah. another problem: is that no matter where you go in the world, when you say to people, "How's democracy doing?" they say, "Well, I love." an election, so democracy blows. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, democracy has sort of become a proxy now for, do you like the way things are going for you? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, well, early in the book, you talk about this paradox uh, that you just mentioned, that there's this perception that we're living in the worst of times, um, but the standard of living now, for example, is quite high, higher than it ever has been. Um, can you talk about a, a few more of those those pieces and and how it's led to this new wave of illiberalism? What's different now? Why do we misperceive it? And, 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 and how have we gotten here? This is the part of the conversation when people listening in um, start to feel like their head's going to explode. Yeah, I imagine they will. So buckle up, folks. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, uh, this is not a drill. Yeah. Set condition one SQ. Yeah. Um, you know, the problem is that uh, your feelings are not facts. Um, and, you know, for example, when you say, look, we actually live in a pretty affluent time. People on the left will explode and say, but income inequality, yes, income inequality exists. It's very high. But income inequality is not the same thing as a standard of living. Those are different things. Income inequality is an is a issue of social justice. And I think actually for us old school conservatives, income inequality is really bad because it snuffs out 
um, innovation and, you know, soaks up money that should go to startups and entrepreneurs and get put back into circulation. But as I point out in the book, most people, and I, and I was, I looked around to other, um, authors and analysts to try to quantify this. Tell me how income inequality changes voting behavior. Mm. Because the, the, what I found in the book is that the greatest resentment we, and resentment is a huge driver of democratic politics these days, mm. small D democratic mm. politics. Um, the people we're angriest at are not Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson. Um, you know, we, we applaud those guys when they pop themselves into space, like nine-year-olds who just bought a rocket. Oh, Twitter doesn't, uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, mean, you know, I mean, so does the media. I yeah. mean, they love them. Yeah, you know, that's true. Look at hey, Jeff Bezos yeah. took a ride in space, you know. Um, but if you actually look into the way people behave and when they talk about when you start measuring things like happiness in life and so on and behavior on social media and places like Facebook and Zillow addiction, where people go surfing around looking at each other's houses. The resentment is aimed not at the super rich, but at the people who are just a little bit better off than you are. And that's the really dangerous thing. It's not when the working class or the underclass or even the middle class starts resenting the super rich. It's when they all start resenting each other. Yeah. The super rich have been very cleverly staying out of it, in part, ironically enough, by funding populist movements. Um, Martin Wolf at, at the Financial Times, a great line, he calls them Pluto populists. Because wow. a lot of these populist movements in the United States, for example, with Trump and um, a lot of the Brexiteers, the Five Star Movement in Italy, these are all backed by fantastically wealthy people. Um, and so the notion that this, that the current state of democracy is some organic dissatisfaction with income inequality, um, it just doesn't, the, the argument doesn't hold water, especially when, as I keep, you know, hammering the table here, when, uh, the standard of living, even for very poor people is actually quite high, com even compared to 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Because the other part of this thing that makes people's heads explode is they say, well, you know, you're, so you're saying that because we're not being operated on by barber surgeons, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just because we have real doctors instead of Theodoric of York, um, you know, we should be grateful. But that's that's not really what I'm saying. I mean, I I keep looking across changes in living standards within my own adult lifetime. Yeah. Um, you know, if you had said to I'm about to turn 61, if you had said to 21 year old me that I'd be sitting here with you, Ron, doing this. Um, in after a pandemic where a vaccine was developed in a year uh, and that, you know, we are still very deeply concerned about five and a half percent unemployment and three percent inflation with so much food around the world that we actually have to subsidize the, the production of food so farmers don't go broke. I, you know, I, I would have said that's that that's and by the way, and no Soviet Union. And, you know, a handful of nuclear weapons as opposed to 20 or 30,000 in the hands of the superpowers. I would have said, I probably would have said at 21, pass the bong, um, you know, because yeah. I want whatever that is that, you you know, made you say that. Uh, or or so I, I, I have a daughter. I probably shouldn't have said that. Uh, or, <laughs> so I imagine some younger version of me might have done. But but I, it would have been wildly optimistic to even begin to think that way. Yeah. And I think now we have 
there is a thing called hedonic adaptation. Yeah. Where you simply get used to the level of standard, the, the standard of living you're at, the level of the standard of living you're at. And you say, this is the minimum. And anything below this is oppression. Um, you know, if you've always slept in a queen size bed, sleeping in a twin bed feels horrible. If you've always eaten sirloin, then, you know, uh, uh, flank steak tastes like leather and on and on and on. And I'm look, I'm not saying that there aren't problems and I'm not saying that there aren't people suffering. I'm simply saying that to look around in 2021 and say, my God, we are all in such misery that democracy has failed is not only factually unsupportable. It, if you really believe that, you should think about whether or not you've been sucked in by political entrepreneurs who are working overtime to make you believe that. Is this a good place to pause and ask you about how all of this causes people to think economic systems are broken? Well, the problem is that they can't. I think that the public d- doesn't see the difference between a bad economic policy and a system of government. You know, democracies have, you can have big spending democratic governments and tightwad democrat, and again, small d, not American parties. Um, you know, we are in control of that. Those policies are enacted by the people we elect. Yeah. Um, this is the other thing that drives me crazy. People say, well, democracy is broken. Well, you know, who keeps putting these morons in office? Yeah. Ask the voters. Um Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and, and this is the other part of the conversation that makes people's heads explode. They say, oh, there's too much money in politics. We can't ever get rid of those folks. I'm sorry, but Hillary Clinton outspent Donald Trump. Um, you know, Michael Bloomberg outspent everybody. Um, people spend wads of money and fail to achieve takeoff rates. You know, I remember when um, Amy McGrath was running against Mitch McConnell and That's I kept right. saying, Stop sending money to Amy McGrath. You can send her $100 billion. She's still not going to win. It's not going to happen. Yeah. You're not going to buy, you know, the. It's you are simply not going to buy out Mitch McConnell's Senate seat because this is about more than who spends how much money. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm not a big fan of AOC, but she did knock out in a low primary, turnout primary with a little shoe leather and a little organizing. She knocks out the guy who's going to be the next, Speaker of the House. Every time people say, well, it's impossible to affect this kind of change. Well, it is right up until you do. That's right. Um, you know, so, uh, and and both parties are severely guilty of this. I mean, I there's a point in the book where I note that um, Kevin McCarthy is the youngest member of all of the leaders, Republican or Democrat, in the House and Senate, because he's only, you know, little air quotes, only been in office for 17 years. This notion somehow that um, you know, all of this is simply an economic system. And the book is in some ways a critique of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but I keep bringing it back to, in a democracy, we make our choices. Why are we in a hyper-consumerist society? Because we want to be. Yeah. You know, and every time I hear that criticism about, well, democracy has failed because we have 57 kinds of toothpaste, but people sleep under bridges. You know, again, my answer is this is the voters yelling, stop giving us what we want. There's a lot of pop culture detours in the book. 
and I want to explain one of them really quickly, and then, and then they're we'll great. Move on. They're great detours, and if I haven't said it yet, the 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 audio book, by the way, is fantastic because it's read by the author himself. And we were talking earlier a little bit about you know authors who read their own books, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. But I this one was actually very good because you get a lot of the you get the intonation. You you're a much better communicator about what it is you're trying to say than I think someone else would be. So these pop culture detours, in particular, are great when you read them. So. Well, that. I really appreciate that because despite my reputation for being an egomaniac, I actually am not in love with the sound of my own voice. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the detours I took, because as I was writing this, I kept thinking of a, of a kind of Silver Age science fiction story I'd read as a kid called An Eye for a What uh, by Damon Knight. He's a you know, really well-known science fiction writer, one of the giants of the, or of the 40s and 50s. And it was about a race of beings who are impervious to pain. And the long story short, one of them offends a member of an earth delegation and he has to be punished. And, and they couldn't figure out how to punish these beings who only seem to worry about whether they kind of eat too much and, you know, are too big and round and spherical, um, but that are completely impervious to torture or pain. And finally, the, the earth commander says, he figures it out and he says, my, the way you're going to atone is you're going to follow my order. And my order to you is do as you please. And the creature just starts like eating everything in sight and is just like rolling around and, you know, in horrible misery. And they finally call it off. And the, and the alien leaders say, that's the, that is the best punishment anyone's ever come up with in 20,000 years. And I keep saying to Americans, you are you are that alien now. You are the people who are following the command. Do as you please. And it is making you horrendously miserable. Um, really almost down to the same kind of metaphor of, of weight and size. And I say this as a guy, you know, with a lot of extra pounds around my middle-aged middle. But, you know, w w do as you please. Well, we have zillions of calories. Um, go ahead, eat McNuggets and a milkshake for breakfast. Um, you know, why, why is America having an epidemic of obesity and diabetes? Because we are doing things we want to do. And we keep shouting at the government, stop us, stop us from doing these things. And then when the government says, well, maybe we should regulate that, they say, how dare you infringe on my freedoms and be paternalistic and tell me what to do. Democratic governments around the world are, are in a no-win situation at that point. Stop us from hurting ourselves, but don't tell us what to do. I don't, I don't know what you, I don't know how to square that circle sometimes. Yeah. This is a great segue to civic engagement that I want to talk about. Um, there's this, there's this example you use in the book from Edward Banfield, uh, and the town he called, um, Montegrano in Italy, which is not mm -hmm. actually called Montegrano. Uh, can you give us an overview of what he witnessed and how we can use that when we think about civic action or inaction in the United States? Yeah, I, you know, just like with the Silver Age science fiction and a couple of other detours in the book, um, I decided to resurrect Banfield, who, who wrote a book called The Moral Basis of a Backward Society. But um, part of the reason he calls this town, which is actually in Italy called Charamonte, um, he gives them this uh, pseudonym, Montegrano, because what he writes about them is so disheartening <laughs> awful that he he actually shrouds their um identity and ban what banfield was really trying to explain was poverty so banfield is a new dealer um he gets kind of disillusioned with the new deal and government planning and he goes off to the university of chicago 
where he starts teaching and he becomes kind of a center right figure mostly because he's simply not enamored of 1960s kind of you know urban planners who are going to great society fixers is he's like now nah, i did that in the 40s it doesn't work um but he was going from he went to places in arizona in utah where he's trying to figure out why american farmers can't cooperate with each other to be prosperous and he can't figure it out and finally he goes to italy with his wife who speaks italian and they're there to on another project and he starts kind of doing this very granular uh look at this commune this village in italy and what he comes to realize is that culture not institutions is what makes things work that you know you can have you can put forward all the grand plans and have all of the government institutions in place but if people don't cooperate with each other none of that works and this ended up becoming as much about democracy as it did about about poverty and banfield this book um even into the time i went into graduate school and afterwards was like required reading it just was like you you know, you could say to, to anybody who'd gone to graduate school in anthropology or political science or sociology, whatever, you'd say Banfield and people go, yeah, yeah, you know, so I, and it's a very readable book and it's short. So I th- I'm going to I said, I'm going to resurrect Edward Banfield here. Every time I read about, you know, like I'd read pieces in Politico or the New York Times or the L.A. Times about, you know, Iowa or Nebraska uh, primaries, the Iowa caucuses, whatever. And people were acting in a way. I said, Jesus, this is right out of Banfield. These are these these, you could replace a lot of these quotes and stories with, you know, Banfield or put them into Banfield's book and no one would notice. And, And that's a really bad thing because Banfield was writing about a poor Italian village in the 50s that had just come out of a war. And uh, my point is, we we in the West are devolving backward toward that village model again, where the only thing you care about is you, your family, your kids, and that's it. And you know, again, people listening will say, "What's, what's wrong, wrong with that?" With that? Right. Yeah, you know. But when that's all you care about, you you start producing paradoxical outcomes. When all you care about is you know your little castle and your moat, your community dies. Um, if all you go and vote on, you know, every two or four years is what's in it for me, your city, your town, your state, everything starts to fall apart. And I think that explains a big part of why things are falling apart. And, you know, it's interesting because other, other folks have pointed out, well, you know, religion, like, um, Mm. some of the, some of the guys on the right who write about this stuff, you know, do that and Carney and those guys, well, you know, if people were more religiously set, well, you know, the people of Montegrano, in theory, were all nominally Catholic. There were a couple of churches in town. They didn't go. Um, They didn't care about that stuff. There was an orphanage in town that full of little girls. It was run by nuns. Nobody even contributed food to it. Hmm. Um, Nobody, none of the day laborers who were out of work ever walked over and said, hey, can I help fix the wall here that's falling on these kids? Um, It was me, mine, and screw you. And I think that's where we are. And I think Banfield, just for that a part of that chapter, I kind of brought that up to say, if you're reading this and this sounds familiar, that should scare you. So I think a lot of people, um, you know, they've spent their adult lives thinking about civic engagement, as you mentioned, as going to vote in presidential elections and in off-year elections, if they remember to stop on the way home from work because they have to get dinner ready for their kids. 
how how would you talk to them about how to reimagine civic engagement? And if that term is too sort of heady or aspirational, how would you talk to them about how to um, to understand their role in a society that is connected and very interconnected as the pandemic has laid bare for everybody to see? How should we be thinking about our role in this thing? A lot of this, I think, again, part of the problem I had writing the book, you know, when you write a book like this, you're supposed to get to the end and say, and here's what you can do. (laughs) Yeah. And here's, you know, I, I, I mean, I just love those books that say democracy and how you can. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, right. Uh, But war and peace, what you can do. There was actually a book when I was, I, I, my, um, I began my career doing, um, Soviet American relations and uh, Kremlin Kremlinology and nuclear arms control stuff. And I still remember, you know, uh, nuclear weapons and what you, the nuclear freeze movement had a book, what, you know, nuclear war and what you can do about it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, not a whole lot you're going to do about that. Um, so I think, um, part, you know, I had, I had, I came up with some solutions that are very micro solutions about changing the size of Congress or, um, you know, some kind of summer of kind of a junior ROTC service for six weeks just to get kids out of their house and into a different environment. But in the end, this comes down to personal habits. And the first thing I tell people is turn off the television and the computer and read a newspaper for 45 minutes a day, 30 to 45 minutes. A, a real because paper, physical paper newspaper. Yeah. If you can get one, that's even better. But if you can't, my local paper here in Rhode Island has now gone almost entirely virtual, but I still read it. If you can do that, I, I keep looking back at my parents. My parents were not educated folks, my mom, but they were very involved and they were very intelligent and they were very knowledgeable uh, because they read. They were readers. My mother had a ninth grade education. That was it. You know, very poor. My, my mother was a depression era baby who uh, literally was homeless as a, as a child for like, not with her family, but like literally as like a, you know, 12, 13 year old was like on the streets. Um, and yet um, like my, my dad who had a 10th grade education and had to drop out of school during the depression, um, they read a newspaper every day and the half hour of national news. And then a half hour of local news that was sacrosanct in our house. From, you know, five, whatever it was, five to six, I think it was, or six to six, five thirty to six thirty, you know, you got a half hour of local news and you got a half hour of national news. And there just wasn't anything else you were going to put on TV because my parents just did that, which meant that every time they voted, they knew what they were voting on. And when my, um, and I'll kind of skip ahead because I tell this story very quickly in the book, but my mom, we, in the eighties, Uh, my neighborhood, like a lot of, you know, working class factory town neighborhoods declined very fast. And we had an open air drug market going on down the street from us. And my mother decided to run for office because my, my mother knew what a zoning committee was and because she'd read the paper and she knew about the basics about how city government worked. And she said, I'm going to run for city alderman. And, she, and her thing was, I'm, I'm going to get on the zoning committee. She just went door to door. I'm going to get on the zoning committee and I'm going to shut down this drug market. And it worked and she wow. got elected. You know, she got knocked out of office. She, my mom was not great at this. She wasn't real good at budgeting. Um, wasn't great at, you know, anything that wasn't zoning. <laughs> uh, 
you know, but she did her best while she was running a business full time with my dad. They had a restaurant and all that stuff. Uh, you know, she closed down this drug market and, you know, she got the cops to put a substation in and to, you know, clean and to enforce the multifamily zoning and all that stuff. So, you know, this was just a normal person who had a lot of impact at one point. And, my, and by the way, my mother, I, I should add, my mother was not some kind of Norma Ray. You know, um, my, my mom was, uh, by the time she did that, she'd just finished a lifelong struggle with alcoholism. Um, you know, we were a typical working class family. We were, I, I shouldn't say typical. We were, we were a messed up working class family. But, you know, these are people who just read a newspaper and followed the news and voted in every election, not just every four years for president. And I think, you know, you, my, my hope for other people is they just model the civic behavior that they want others to emulate, um, you know, to be informed to show up at every one of those elections and preferably now I'm old school about this. I have voted by mail because of the pandemic. I voted by mail absentee. I like going to my local polling place. I love seeing those volunteers who are just can't wait to give me a sticker, you know, to say I voted, um, do these small rituals of democracy and don't be intimidated away from them. I want to talk about virtue. You use this quote from John Adams. It's really great in the book. And it goes, public virtue cannot exist in a nation without private virtue. And public virtue is the only foundation of republics. And virtue is something, especially as we've, we've dug in a lot on this podcast with lots of guests. I've talked with Carly Fiorina a lot about character and virtue and the importance of, of virtue in evaluating candidates. Um, can you unpack that quote for us and, and what are the individual qualities that we need to be cultivating to support a republic? And where do you think that we're faltering? Well, we're at another point in the discussion where someone out there is going to feel their head exploding about, you know, who are you guys to tell us about virtue? Um, you know, you flawed, sinful men, you, um, but Adams was right. Uh, you know, part in the book, when I talk about Montegrano, the, that it's a chapter that suggests what if your neighbors, what if you have good neighbors that you like, but they're not particularly good citizens, right? Like the guys that you hang out at the night, this is again, going back to Banfield Lincoln. So, well, you know, these guys, they, they, nobody's at war with each other. They wave and they play cards together and they have a little cafe and, you know, they kind of live their lives. Um, but what if they're not very good citizens? But then in the next chapter, I, where I talk about Adams and, and Madison, hmm. And I say, you know, what happens if maybe they're just not good citizens? What if they're not good people? And that was a really hard part to write because, you know, who am I to look at my fellow citizens and say, hey, maybe you're just not, not a very good person. Mm -hmm. uh, but Adams, you know, if Mr. Adams could say it, um, I'm a true son of Massachusetts myself, so I think I can say it too. What if, you know, you're taking a lot of, really bad personal qualities into the voting booth with you. Anger, resentment, envy, um, the constant itching desire to get even with people, um, you know, negative partisanship that there is actually political scientists have a term for this, right? Negative yeah. partisanship where you don't go into the voting booth because of what you want to achieve or what you want to support, but because of who you want to punish. This is something Jonathan Haidt writes a lot about. 
these days. Yes. Yeah, wonderful. And, and this notion, um, there's a quote, one of the quotes I used, and again, I'm, I think the American right has become the real repository of this, but n- no one is immune from this. And it's across the spectrum. There's a great quote where uh, there's a woman in Florida who was um, put out of work because of the government shutdown some years ago that Trump provoked. And she said, I supported him, but I'm angry at him now. This isn't why I voted for him. He's not. And she literally said, he's not hurting the people he's supposed to be hurting. Now, if you have voted, if you have gone into the voting booth to say, I'm choosing this person because I want him to hurt my fellow citizens, then maybe you're just not a very good person. And I'm sorry that I know that sounds incredibly judgmental. But if, if you literally go in and say, look, I don't really care, um, you know, the, the guy, there's a book called Dying of Whiteness that was written by a doctor named Jonathan Metzl. And he goes and he talks to people in some of these super red areas, you know, white, poor white people who literally are saying things. He talks to one guy who says, yeah, years of hard partying have destroyed my liver. But if I have to take Obamacare to get a new liver, and that means it's somebody else some welfare queen gets healthcare, then I'd rather die. Well, you know, sorry. I know we're supposed to say, well, we have to understand them and it's a culture and it's a cultural anxiety. No, I'm sorry. If you say I would rather die than get a new liver because somebody else might get healthcare that I don't happen to like, you're just not a very good person. Yeah. You've lost the plot. You've lost the plot. And you've lost the plot as a human being, not just as a voter. That there's something, something deeply dysfunctional in you that says, you know, not only would I rather die, but I'll take somebody with me if that's what it takes not to support this political position. And we're seeing that now with the pandemic. We're literally seeing people saying, no, I would rather die. And if that means that you die too, well, at least I live and I didn't support the right, at least I didn't support the lefties and the guys in the white jackets and the pointy heads. And I'm sorry, again, I'm, I'm sorry, not sorry. If you have gotten to the point in a democracy where your attitude is, I just want to hurt other people, then you are not a good citizen and you are not a good person. And we have to start thinking about that. Because one of the things I, I felt growing up, and this is where, where the kind of autobiographical elements came in. I didn't grow up among people that were like, you know, paragons of virtue. I grew up among people that were, you know, hard drinking, fighting, um, you know, but they had some basic sense of, of personal dignity and, and virtue and, and a very strong sense of civic virtue. My father, who I talk about a bit in the book, my father was a racist. My father was just an old school, you know, born in 1918, uh, Greek American, just, you know, like, and I mean, he, went to, he wasn't like a Klan member or a Bircher. He just was one of those guys who casually dropped the N-word about black people because that's what they were to him. And yet, my father never said that about Barack Obama because you just didn't talk that way about the president of the United States. It didn't matter how much you hated him. There were lines and you didn't do that. And I find that almost quaint. Um, you know, I tell a story in the book where my dad, just before he dies, um, he was 94 and he died just before the 2012 election. And, um, 
we're watching Obama and uh, give a campaign rally. And we were both from Massachusetts and we liked Mitt Mitt Romney. I voted for Romney and my dad would have if he had lived long enough. And I said, yeah, but you know, dad, I don't think, uh, I don't think Romney's got a prayer here. I said, I think the president's going to get reelected. My father just nodded quietly. um, And he said, they're both good men. He said, we're going to be fine no matter who wins. That to me, that is what civic virtue looks like. Even somebody has with the kind of nasty, retro, my father didn't stop using that kind of racial language until maybe the late 80s or the early 90s when his grown children just said, dad, not at our dinner table, you know, sorry. Um, and, you know, grumbling old man, oh, all right, you know, God damn it. Um, you know, but he, but we sort of shamed him out of it in later, you know, at the very end of his life, at least some of us did, and shamed him out of it at the end of his life. And, um, and yet, even at the end, he looks at this, you know, this black president, um, liberal Democrat, and a governor he liked a lot. And he said, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine no matter what happens. Um, and they're both good men. Now, you know, he had a preference, but he, but he recognized the essential decency of both of these men. And so we're going to be fine no matter what. And I, I just don't think we do that anymore. And I think if you really have gotten to the point where you say, you know, Joe Biden is evil. Um, you know, Joe Biden drinks the blood of children. Then you, again, as you say, Ron, you've not only lost the plot, but but you've really lost, you've lost touch with reality as a human being. And, and there's something wrong with you at that point. I, I just think there is, that's a moral collapse. That's a moral implosion that is beyond politics. You know, we talk a lot about nostalgia in politics and there are campaigns that focus on going back to some time when everything was good. Obviously, that's at the core of Make America Great Again. Um, <laughs> what, are the, what, are, what are the other dangers that, that nostalgia presents? I talk a lot in the book about nostalgia because, um, for one thing, we every generation thinks they invented it. <laughs> you know, like they say things like, well, you know, back in the 70s, you guys, and I, I, I feel this keenly now because I'm, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm 60. Yeah. So, you know, 25 year old saying, well, you know, back in the 70s, you had it made. And I'm like, oh my God, dude, the 70s sucked. The 70s were hideous. They were, this is, you're living, you're living in like nirvana compared to the 70s. So I took another cultural detour in the book where I pointed out that, um, you know, the people who think that the, you know, kind of white guys like me, like Archie Bunker, right? You know, guys like us, we had it made, right? Yeah. Um, that in 1971, Night Gallery, Rod Serling's famous television show, wins an Emmy for one of the most striking um, segments it ever ran, because it wasn't really a horror story. It was called They're Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar. And it's about a a middle-aged, of course, in those days, middle-aged meant like 48, right? Um, You know, which now we think of as youthful and spry. But it's a guy who's been with his company for 25 years, and he's getting forced out and he's an alcoholic and he's a widower and, you know, smarmy, young, up and coming guys wearing hip paisley suits or pushing him out of his job and all that. And he just goes on this rant about the world is against guys like me now and his nostalgia. And he keeps going back to this Tim Riley's bar, which is about to be demo- demolished. And, in, and he almost dies because he's in there while they're trying to, he's trying to stop the bar from being destroyed. He's having memories of 1945. 
coming home from the war. That was the good time. And I, I put it there to say, you know, it never changes. Everybody think for somebody, there's whatever 20 years ago is always better than now. And if you get on that treadmill, and this is to bring this back to your point about democracy, if you constantly are on that treadmill, no democratic government can keep up with you. They simply can't. They can't, if you keep cherry picking, you know, when people talk to me about the 1970s, I'm like, yeah, um, except, you know, gays were closeted, women were oppressed, you know, the civil rights movement was only about six or seven years old. Um, you know, yeah, you could get a great union paying job. OSHA didn't exist. And if your hand got mashed in a, you know, in a laundry machine or cut in half by a buzzsaw, too, too damn bad about you, uh -huh. uh, you know, but don't worry, you'll collect social security because there's plenty of social security because you're only going to live to be about six. <laughs> yeah. You know, because yeah. you're going to die in your 50s, or early 60s anyway, because um, you all smoke and you're, you know, there. I mean, like what part? But they say, but yeah, but college was cheaper. And I'm like, well, yeah, because nobody went. Yeah. Um, well, they say, well, were affordable. Yeah, because they were small and you shared a bathroom and you lived, you know, with three bedrooms with, you know, two, two kids in one and mom and dad in the other and a new baby in the third one. And that's it. You know, you, that was your house. Yeah. Um, as Kevin Williamson said at one, of course, you know, Kevin Williamson is a lot tougher about this stuff than I am. He said, Hey, you can have the lifestyle your parents had on the money you have now because it's very affordable, but you've really got to commit to it. You know, you've got to commit to the square footage and the one TV and the one telephone and no car and mass transit everywhere. And, clipping coupons and, you know, working eight, 10 hours a day. I mean, you can do it. You won't like it, but you can do it. And, and that nostalgia is there's, and I'll, I'll get off this subject because um, I get spun up about no, nostalgia. No, I, I, I just hate it so much, but um, old people's nostalgia is they're remembering the time. Like I remember being, you know, I, when I think back to my my college years, right, 1980, 1981, I was 20, 21 years old. Of course, I'm nostalgic about it. I had a 31 inch waist. I had a couple of nice girlfriends. <laughs> I was living in Boston. I totally have forgotten the part about how I really couldn't afford to go out for a pizza. You know, I have put aside the part where I was signing up for student loans at 14% interest because of <sighs> the inflation in 1980. I just, for, I just let all that go. If you say, Tom, what was life like in 1980? I say, it was awesome. <laughs> all I remember is like, you know, hanging out on the, on the BU bridge with a pretty girl, you know, that's what I remember. I don't remember that most of the time I was really anxious about the fact that I couldn't find a job, even a part-time job in college. Unemployment was 10%. My student loans were through the roof. Um, you know, I barely could afford to, you know, a date was like going out for, uh, to McDonald's because that's what I could afford. You know, I've, I've whitewashed all that out for younger people that the nostalgia is, I think even more destructive because it's a constructed reality. Yeah. So I want to inject another, uh, another anecdote to this, to this thread, which is Elizabeth Warren's messaging around wages here, because she will talk about how her mother could support the family working a minimum wage job at Sears. And I wonder how you think that we can reflect on former policies that we've moved away from, but without falling into the dangers of 
of nostalgia that you're, uh, without idealizing them and 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 sort of constructing a false reality that existed back in some fixed point in history that we want to you know resurrect yeah there's two things about that one is you know when elizabeth warren talks about my mom could afford to support us on minimum wage at sears in oklahoma in you know 1960 um okay but just remember that when you hear that remember what life in oklahoma in 1960 on minimum wage looked like if you are committing to that lifestyle you can probably, that's Williamson's point. You can probably do that today. Move to Oklahoma, get a minimum wage job, live the way, you know, your parents lived, um, throw away your phones, throw away your data plan, throw away your television, you know, no internet. everywhere, no car, you know, just really co commit to living to the bone. The other thing is no one thought that was supposed to be a permanent condition. Mm. And when people like Warren talk about this, it makes me nuts because they're like, Everybody understood, I, I think it used to be anyway, everybody understood, yes, you can grind it out for a few years on minimum wage, but you're not supposed to, that's not your career track. And, and, you know, and I don't mean that as a professional. I mean, it's not, if you're a working class kid, even me, you know, and the kids I graduate from high school with, nobody said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work, I'm going to work minimum wage at McDonald's for the rest of my life. In fact, I, this is, I will just throw in here an anecdote. I had a conversation a few years after I graduated. So this would have been around 1980, 81. I went back to my high school, visit my old guidance counselor. He's a really good guy. And he said, he said, these, these kids are making really bad investments in the future because they're, they're making a lot of money washing dishes at the big boy and, while living with their parents. And so they have, you know, they can buy a new car because that's when I started to notice things like, wow, the cars in the parking lot, you know, are nicer than mine. Um, and the teachers started to notice that, like the kids are driving nicer cars than we are. <laughs> um, that was unsustainable. Uh, and the idea that you could that at some point, five or six years after high school, you wouldn't want to be washing dishes at the big boy anymore. Um, and I think part of this phenomenon of living with the parents um, and again, I'm going to make people really mad. Their heads are going to explode. But a lot of this phenomenon of living with the parents was the unwillingness to take the giant hit in living standard that comes with moving out. Um, my, the, I lived in a dorm for two years and then to save money, um, you know, I did what kids do. I went and got a apartment that I crowded into with other guys. Um, and at one point, uh, all I could afford was a roach-filled dump where we turned a living room into a bedroom. But for, for me, that was the, my priority was not to have to go home and live with my parents. So I was going to live, you know, literally on top of a dumpster that was behind my window, which in the summer was not a happy experience. Yeah. And don't even ask yeah. me about air conditioning. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that a lot of this dissatisfaction is... Um, how can my parents live so well and I'm living in such squalor? But that's always been the rule. And again, to bring it back to the book, that doesn't mean that rents are reasonable. It doesn't mean that the housing market is sane. It needs to be changed. We need to, you know, this is a place where I think people on the left need to go to war with the NIMBY liberals about things like zoning and occupancy. But that's not a failure of democracy. That's a failure of policy. That's a failure of a particular choice of of 
you know, governments at any given time. These are within your powers to solve. Um, you know, New York doesn't have to be rent controlled for all eternity. Um, you know, San Francisco doesn't need to be zoned into un unaffordability for all eternity. You can make these choices, but you know, you can also make the choice that maybe you maybe you don't have to live in San Francisco. Um, it is not it is not the fault of liberal democracy that you cannot afford to live in the Bay Area. I'm sorry that making that jump is inane. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, liberal democracy is totally messed up because I want to be a writer and live in Brooklyn. Well, you know, I want to be an actor and live in Hollywood. And that didn't happen either. But you don't see me tearing up the Constitution over it. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover the show organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.